Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Papa. I'm alone right here. I'll just me and Julio. Say hi, Julio. Julio doesn't talk. Oh, there he goes. Uh, we're excited to launch the Impact Real Estate Podcast Summer Series, where we bring back some of our favorite interviews from the previous iteration of this podcast. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reintroducing you to some of the titans of our industry with the hope that their stories will continue to impact all of you. As always, any love you can send the podcast via like, share, comment, or review across iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or the jacksonlucas.com website is always appreciated. For now, thanks for tuning in and have a great summer. We have a very special guest, Andrea Ponzer. Andrea is the president and CEO at Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future. How are you, Andrea? Doing great. You're in the DC metro region area, right? We are. Heard there was a big election there recently. Uh, you know, a few folks have heard about it. Exciting times here. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I am in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so, like we were saying beforehand, we just went on a, a lockdown on December, December 18th, which is very exciting. How's the, um, I guess, the COVID lockdown situation in the D.C. area? Probably a little more mild. The scuttlebutt today is that the mayor is going to close all indoor dining on December 23rd, I think right in time for everyone to go home for the holidays anyway. Um, but it's uh, things seem to be improving, actually, new infection rates and hospitalization rates. But we're still pretty seriously locked down around here. Did you have full capacity in the restaurants or like 25% or? I think we were at like 50 or 25% DC and probably like the Bay Area is a little challenging because you've got three states and a multitude of counties and each one had a slightly different um, capacity level. So. Yeah. I'm in San Mateo County and like all the other counties around me were in lockdown, but we were open for some reason. And so it was just like, come to San Mateo County and eat. <laughs> there were moments like that. I live in the city of Alexandria, which is right over the river. And there were moments when we were slightly more open and it felt like everyone had come to our little main street. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, the sign of the times. Hopefully it's over soon. Um, so you are the president and CEO of Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future. Can you tell everyone what Stewards is? Please. Sure. We're a sort of unique little policy collaborative here in Washington, D.C., and we're collaborative of 13 of the country's larger nonprofit multifamily affordable housing developers. So our members develop, own, and operate apartment complexes serving people of, of limited economic means all over the country. We're in uh, about 2,000 properties, 148,000 units in 49 states. And what role, can you explain that in, to someone? Pretend, that I don't, pretend I don't yeah. know what that means. So <laughs> of course we, I do, though, but just for the audience. It's so we represent the policy and practice interests of those members. We come together and we learn from them. So we offer opportunities for peer exchange and identify what they're seeing on the ground, let them exchange those best ideas, and then also translate them into policy ideas. So taking from what's actually happening, how the deals are actually getting done, and what's being experienced by that real estate owner or operator, and turning that into policy recommendations, both bigger legislative asks, but also pretty nitty gritty things where you may be talking to HUD or the IRS or even financial partners about what does this look like on the ground and how can we do this better? How can we be more impactful or more efficient in doing this? 
We focus really heavily too on how you can use housing as a platform to improve people's lives and improve communities. So thinking not just about real estate finance and operations, but how you can leverage in partnerships that improve health and financial well-being, employment, education, all of those things. So I'm a developer or I run a development company and I'm like, man, I really wish this policy was changed or something. Do I call you and say, Andrea, make it happen. Like how does, how does that all work? So we're this close-knit group of these 13 nonprofits. So we work primarily with them, but we how also- do get, How do you get in that group? How do you get in that group? It's an invitation group. It's a group that for a long time has worked together. Um, they're all multi-state. They're all operating in multi-state and all quite large. Um, but we also work with a lot of other industry organizations from the really large ones to you know smaller other nonprofit groups as well. So we talk to developers in our network and outside of our network and take that in and, and try and understand what it means in practice um, that, you know, anything from how you qualify people's income on affordable housing to how you think about, you know, eligible basis and a tax credit deal um, is all on the table. What are some of the biggest issues right now? So obviously right now we're thinking a lot about rent arrearages and people's ability to pay their rent. People are really hurting out there and have been for many months. And our members have been seeking all sorts of creative ways to make people remain, you know, make sure people can remain stable in their home um, from you know raising their own funds to working with folks to apply for state and local assistance. Our members have made a commitment to, to not evict or displace anyone, notwithstanding a, a moratorium. And, and that's been really nice to see, but it, it's still a big challenge. So we're thinking, I think like many folks about this COVID relief package that's being worked on actively today, as well as federal funding, right? Just your normal annual federal budget, which is an important part of sort of the affordable housing ecosystem. And then there's always ways we can be investing more. You know, we've got, a, a, we had a crisis level shortage of affordable housing before COVID um, and that hasn't changed. That's, you know, even worse now when more folks need homes that are affordable to them and what affordable means is even more challenging. So we think a lot about uh, tools for public private investment, like the low income housing tax credit or the housing credit that incentivizes private investment in, in affordable housing. And so we are actively you know, working in large coalitions to advocate for an expansion and some improvements in that program too. So you're, yeah, so you're kind of the voice of these members to policymakers generally. That's, that's the Yep, to policymakers and, and sort of a conduit for them to work with one another. We work not only with policymakers, but also philanthropic partners and industry partners to, to try new things. For instance, we've got a, a great new partnership with, we have a low income housing tax credit syndication affiliate that matches developers with investors to build and, and preserve these deals. Um, together with our affiliate, the National Affordable Housing Trust, uh, we have a partnership with United Health Group where United is investing in some tax credits, helping to provide the capital to build and preserve affordable housing, but also providing some supplemental funding to support services for the residents that live there. So with this power of the collaborative and some of the work that we do together, we think a lot about how to partner with these, with these outside groups and investors who may wanna do new and creative things to really get greater impact out of their investments and their role. And as far as the services part, like how does that work with service? I've seen some places form their own nonprofit, like a big developer will then have like a separate mm -hmm. services. Like why does that happen? How does that, how do you form one of those? And like, can you take us through that process? Yeah. So, I mean, our members are already nonprofits and it's a kind of a shared principle among them that they believe in more than just a roof over the heads. They want to enhance lives through enriching properties with services. 
that happens, particularly in the for-profit world where you see a separate entity set up because it's an incredibly difficult thing to fund. There's no funding source in the vast majority of affordable housing programs for providing those services or staffing that person that can help connect people to services that already exist. So you're often fundraising or looking for really creative structures to make that happen. And it's one of the policy solutions we're sort of constantly in business solutions chipping away at it and working hard on. But in the for-profit space, you'll see a nonprofit form so that folks can fundraise. They can seek donations and, and participate in different programs that will help them fund those services and connect with other nonprofits. Where are they fundraising from? Like, who are the fund? You know, is it like from banks? Is it from big institutions? Or I, yeah, I think it runs the gamut. We see a lot of folks doing sort of your typical nonprofit gala fundraisers and direct appeals, as well as getting funding from banks and from corporations. Less so from like the big, you know, big philanthropy, like you hear advertising on NPR. They're typically not funding those direct service investments. They're more wanting to do big scale systems change. So it tends to be more local philanthropy, corporations, banks, and direct giving. And what are some of like the major serve? Like, I've never lived in an affordable housing complex, so I don't really know. Like, what are the services that affordable housing owners and operators provide to their residents? So we think it's really important to be resident-centered when you do this. So you begin by looking at what who, who lives there and what do they need and what does the community already have? What can you just help people plug into and, and how should that inform how you're providing services? What that looks like in practice can be a range of things. If you've got a senior property, you might be providing you know connections to meals on wheels or you know, regular blood pressure checks or even a visiting nurse. Food insecurity is a huge problem, particularly right now. So um, opportunities to connect to food banks or even delivery to the properties is uh, popular. Um, we have a number of members uh, with properties serving small children who will work on after-school programs of various sorts, educational enrichment and just recreational. So it can run the gamut. We have a member that is uh, deeply invested in a financial coaching program that helps folks set, set and achieve goals and actually is uh, creates a, a sort of escrow savings program for them to help further those goals. And then when was Stewards form? Was it, did it come out of, and how did it, how would it, how did it form? How was it formed? Yeah. Um, so a bunch of friends, uh, <laughs> back in 2003, our, our founding principals came together, um, and recognized that they had this in common. They were these nonprofits with this deep, deep mission commitment, but that they were also sophisticated. They're, you know, large and operating in multi-states and so they had trusted relationships with policymakers and a lot of sophisticated insight but this guide star of mission it didn't feel like they had a, a place for that sort of um, close-knit sharing that they wanted to do in a lot of the industry groups they're not small local nonprofits so those groups didn't feel right and they're very mission driven so the broader tent sometimes they felt like they wanted their own space and they came together and created us that's pretty cool how did you get there How'd they find you? <laughs> yeah, so I joined SAFE about four years ago and became the CEO at the beginning of this year. Uh, my SAFE origin story goes back up almost 10 years now. I was pro bono counsel for SAFE. I right. was a practicing lawyer for a number of years before I did policy work. And we have longstanding work in energy efficiency, thinking about how you can bring greater energy efficiency to affordable housing. The built environment is, of course, a significant contributor to climate change. 
And there are all sorts of opportunities to make that more efficient as well as more healthy and sustainable for the people that live there and the community around them. SAFE was an early leader in this space and was working on some energy performance contracting demos. And I got roped in to do some work and thought, God, this is just the coolest group of housers. I wish I could only work with these kind of folks. And now I have this dream roster of clients. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. As, as, as ener- speaking of energy efficiency, I, I've seen one of my clients who does, owns a lot of affordable housing there. That's a big thing that they have. They say they you know, do all this energy efficiency thing. Is that something that's happening across the board more so you see in affordable housing? Yeah, I think there was a big push and, and many things, you know, follow incentives that are happening in a regulatory way or in a financial way. There was a big push 10 to 12 years ago that helped do a lot of early retrofit work, and there are a lot of incentives, a a great deal. The biggest source of funding for affordable housing right now for construction and preservation is the low-income housing tax credit. Each state has a qualified allocation plan, a plan according to which they allocate those resources. And within that, energy efficiency, climate resilience, and other things are, um, are incentivized. One of the things we're really excited about right now Um, putting aside what is or isn't in QAPs is the idea of community solar, how you can um, really at a community level benefit from solar panels. That's great. And what are like, what's the main skill set of being like, say there's somebody listening to this podcast who's like just getting out of college. Like, wow, her job sounds really cool. Like I want to be the president and CEO of, (laughs) of an organization like that. What, I mean, what skill sets do you use on a day-to-day basis to, to, to run an organization like this so and the, bring all these people together? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it, it's kind of an, an interesting challenge, but it's a great job. Um, so having a transactional background is really helpful in this and is sort of a, a distinguishing characteristic of SAFE that we think about in a very deal-driven way about how things happen and in a very operational way. A lot of my staff has worked on the front lines of affordable housing properties or thought in some other capacity on the finance side at different points. And we have the benefit of this affiliate that's actively syndicating deals. So that transactional lens of understanding how you go from policy to practice is really quite helpful, as is the legal background, because what we're thinking about is law and regulation and understanding how you change that. And then again, how that moves through to actual deal documents is is further helpful. You know, I, client skills, I, I think are really helpful too, right? If you've managed a client load and understand different perspectives and timing pressures, I think it's really helpful if you're working with a, a group of, of members who are really just clients by a different name. Um, so I, that's a, another thing. I think if you're gonna be in policy or member services, that experience of having been in any sort of client relationship can be enormously helpful. How big is Stewards? Or, uh, should I call it safe? Is it? Safe is what we go by. Yeah. How, how many people are in safe? Are they all in DC? And what are the kind of different roles that you know that fill out the organization? Yeah. So we are small but mighty. Um, there are <laughs> eleven of us. Ten of us are in DC or the environs right now. That we're all scattered to the wind right now because yeah. of COVID. Um, our SVP for energy, Becky, lives in the Bay Area, um, in San Mateo, actually, um, oh. and uh, leads her work from out there. So there are a variety of roles. I say small but mighty because truly there's a significant diversity of work here. So we have what I think of as a traditional housing policy shop where we think about federal appropriations for affordable housing programs and policies that incentivize the production, preservation, operation of high quality affordable housing and services for residents. 
We then have an energy shop that they're a sustainability shop really that thinks about energy and water efficiency and climate resilience. Um, they are celebrating a big win this year, SAFE made a commitment to reduce by 20% by 2020 our energy and water consumption across the portfolio. And we have achieved that and exceeded the goal. So look forward to a big celebration of that next year. I'm told there'll be a pinata. Um, ah. <laughs> so, official. yeah, so we have two folks that work in that space who have um, sort of broader environmental sustainability backgrounds and experience. Um, and then we have a health and housing team that is folks that think very broadly about resident health and outcomes. And there's a diverse set of skills there. Our VP of health and housing has a public health background um, and is thinking a lot about those social determinants, all of those things outside the health, the doctor's hospital, doctor's office and hospital that are informing how your, how your health plays out um, and how that connects to affordable housing. Together with her on that team is our resident outcomes and data group. SAFE has invested a lot in thinking about how affordable housing can improve life outcomes for folks. So we've got this framework for resident outcomes where our members gather data, of course, with resident consent, um, on how folks' lives are going across categories like education and income, feelings of safety and health and well-being. Um, and so we collect and, and analyze those to understand what are the impacts and share that back with our members so they can evaluate what they're doing and think about partnerships. So we have a data and analytics manager who's a sort of policy slash data person and then a resident outcomes team that thinks about those best practices and resident services and our director who leads that work as well as our course certification program, which we can talk about, um, is has been a sort of regional uh, leader of resident services hands-on. So she's got sort of both that policy and practice lens as well. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the certification. Do you, are, yeah, please elaborate. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we talked about before resident services and how valuable that can be in connecting people to what they need, but this challenge of saying, you know, how do I pay for this? And if you're on the funder side, you can say, look, this is great. And I want to give preference to the person that, you know, that says they can do this. I want to find ways to pay for it. I want to give preference to that activity, but but how do I know who can really do that and who's just going to sort of throw a bingo night or a birthday party for their residents, which is great and important to have a good time, but maybe not going to move the needle in the same way as some of these other services. So a few years ago, building out of some work we've been doing for a long time with our members and a larger community of practice, thinking about what does a systems approach look like to this? How do we make sure that when that one great person at a property leaves and goes to grad school or on to the next thing, we don't lose the impactful program? So we'd built out this framework already for how you take a systems approach to thinking about this and being both resident-centered and data-driven. And out of that, we developed uh, what we call the CORES program, Certified Organization for Resident Engagement and Services. And what this looks at is not an individual property or person, but a developer entity. Um, so for instance, you know, the community builders or Mercy Housing or one of those that are all members that bear the certification. Um, and, and how do they approach this? What are the resources and capacity they have at the corporate level and how do they ensure these quality and practices and what is the business model for driving this down to the resident level? Um, and that was developed in part in partnership with Fannie Mae because they were in this position of, of being a financial actor that wanted to incentivize resident services. And so one of the ways CORES can be useful is CORES certified entities are eligible for a mortgage program under Fannie Mae called uh, 
Healthy Housing Rewards-Enhanced Resident Services. There are a couple of pathways under Healthy Housing Rewards, the ways that Fannie's incentivizing healthy housing. And with that, if your core is certified and you finance a property through this, you get a lower interest rate so that there's a little money left to help support resident services. Yeah. There's a few states looking to it too is that evidence of how do we feel confident that this is an entity that can deliver on what they're promising and is going to provide this sort of high-quality resident-centered service. That's great. Um, and so... You know, we just, we're having a change of administration now. Like wh how much influence does each administration have on affordable housing? Like a ton, ton or a little? Yeah, yeah it absolutely can be ton. I mean, Congress obviously matters too, right? For, for the lowest income people, you absolutely need rental subsidies full stop and Congress has to play a role in that. But an administration, you know, has to play a leadership role in asking for that and defining what those priorities look like and thinking not just about dollars, but about how you make sure that we're spending those dollars in a way that is equitable and it advances racial equity and racial justice. We are, you know, we think that we move backwards in that uh, respect over the last four years and are looking forward to sort of a, a return to being more deliberate and thinking about how the way the federal government acts and invests in housing can drive us towards more equitable communities. And so just looking at your career, like did you, grow up in a family where there was a lot of, you know, concern about affordable housing. Where did this come from? This not everyone, you know, a lot of people going out and just trying to earn, earn a buck. You're, you seem like you're trying to do good while, you know, while earning money too. Yeah. So I am the pretty rare case of somebody that came out of college knowing she wanted to work in affordable housing. Nice. Um, so, you know, I think there was concern. I'm the child of a single mom. And we, when I was in the fourth grade, my mom saved every penny and bought a home with an FHA insured loan. And I don't know why a nine-year-old learned what an FHA insured loan was, but she was like determined to raise a daughter with financial literacy. Yeah. So I learned, I learned about how you bought a house and how there were programs that were really important and programs that maybe historically hadn't worked as well. Um, and my mom is not a real estate person at all. Um, and, and that house was a significant part of like kind of the formative years of my childhood, a source of stability. I walked to school. I had neighbors that wa watched us after school. My brother grew up with like us, you know, John Hughes movie childhood, running <laughs> a free house in the backyard with the three other little boys in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and, and that didn't last. We hit another period of sort of moving around a lot, not having that same stability. So I think it just resonated. And, and I'm absolutely fortunate for a host of reasons that, you know, I, it, it's been much worse for other people. But I'm fascinated by the sort of concept of home and absolutely convicted that it's, it's fundamental to us being healthy as a society. Yeah, I agree. Um, so like your career trajectory, you went to, got your undergrad degree. Did you go straight to get your JD or were you, were you involved doing something before you got your JD? Pretty much straight to the JD. I took a whopping nine months off and ran a coffee shop. Nice. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like nineties prototype kind of. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, what's that movie with, um, oh, I can't think of it with Pearl Jam, the guy from Pearl Jam's in it. When I want to ride it. Oh yeah. Singles. Singles. Yeah, that's cool. Huh? Um, and then did you feel like, Hey, if I get my, my JD, I'll have like the most impact. I can have the most impact in, in this, in this world. I, I think so. I, you know, and I will fully admit, I'm excited to talk to you today because this didn't exist, right? Like 15, 20 years ago to understand how do you get into some of these career paths? I knew I wanted to work on this issue. And the one person I met along the way during some undergraduate research where I understood how you followed her path 
was a lawyer. And so I was like, sure, that path, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the issue I want to work on. So there I go. Um, and there are a lot of other great paths to get to work on affordable housing. So. Yeah. And then it looks like you worked at HUD as an attorney and you worked in some other um, organizations and kind of like made your way through it. Is it like, was, is it a, someone trying to get into the affordable housing world? Is it a, how easy is it to like maneuver around and get, you know, career advancement and actually make it, you know, a big difference. And instead of, I don't know, is it like, it seems like there's a lot of, it's a microcosm of like the real estate world combined with some other social services, but is it like, can you just, is it easy to maneuver and advance your career? Yeah, I think so. Once you're in, I think identifying that that's what you want to do, you know, obviously like anything, if you're in a bigger organization, there may be more opportunities over time. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of opportunities. It's complicated, right? Like doing an affordable housing deal is more complicated than just a conventional deal, more layers, more complications. So it's sort of either for you, it's either exhilarating, I think, or it's not. Um, I, I think I encourage a lot more folks to look at it, right? When I talk to folks that work in more conventional spaces of saying like, look, it's, it doesn't have to be forever either. There's definitely a steep learning curve if you lateral in for something from something else, but it's really satisfying. And I think there's tremendous opportunity, um, particularly if you're a creative thinker and passionate about the mission. Yeah. And even we think broadly about it too, right? Like you can develop the real estate, but there's also lenders and regulators and a host of actors, I, I think where you can work on the mission from a little bit of whatever corner you're coming from or want to land in. Yeah. I mean, once I started diving in more, I was like, holy smokes, this is a huge, you can come at it from every angle, even just like the services part, right? I work with a lot of like market rate property management companies. Then when I'm working on the affordable side, it's like, well, now, yeah, we have, we, we provide services to all our residents and like all this, I'm like, holy smokes. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, like a full on 360 degree, like kind of world you create. Almost. Absolutely. And there seems to be a rise of those third party service providers too, which you know I think is is great as more and more operators say, look, this is worthwhile for our residents and, and probably for us too and how our properties operate. So it's a whole nother dimension of, of actors in this space. Do you provide sort of uh, advisory work to someone trying to like a property management company trying to get into affordable housing or is, there, or is that something that exists? You know, I think there are some groups that do that. We don't, um, but there are some groups that think a lot about training and certification of those groups um, that, that may be trying to enter the space. There's a fantastic industry association for affordable housing management groups, NAMA, um, that does a lot of that. And then there's a group, I think it's IRAM, um, Institute of Real Estate Management, that does a, a ton of training too at sort of all different levels that can be really helpful. Are there other groups like SAFE out there? Uh, so there's a group of nonprofits called Housing Partnership Network that is similar in a lot of ways and different in some. There are about 100 nonprofits, and they're not just multifamily. They include some community development financial institutions and some single-family groups. Um, and they do a lot of business innovation, too, um, but also do policy work and peer exchange like we do. So we spend a lot of time partnering and working with them. Um, and there are, you know, the National Housing and Rehabilitation Association has some small cohorts within their group, too, that do peer exchange. So I, I think it's a popular way for developers to come together and, and learn and share in sort of trusted cohorts like that. What advice would you give someone who's trying to explore, who's exploring affordable housing? What, like, what, what do you like about it so much? What, what are the challenges you've faced, the rewards? 
You know, the advice is, I, I find this an incredibly generous industry. People are so willing to give of their time and of their connections and to just be bold in asking for people's time and, and learning about what they do and trying to make some connections. It is not a hard part of an industry to, to network in, in my opinion. Um, and it's not huge. So quickly, it becomes a very comfortable and supportive place to be. I love that I've never been bored. It's been almost 20 years and like the problems are complex and challenging and that can be frustrating to you where you think this shouldn't be so hard to just build an affordable quality home for someone. We're one of the richest countries on earth. This is crazy. But you know, intellectually it's it's stimulating and challenging to think about how we do this better and to be in a space where you're not being told to tamp down those questions, right? Of should, are we doing this the right way, but instead being invited to lift them up and say, is there a better way? Like, what does this mean for this other sort of objective or goal that we want to advance? So I think that's, I think that's a great part of it. And I, it's, uh, I don't take that for granted. I have a, a lot of, you know, close friends and family members that I don't think find that in their job. So. Yeah. What, what do you, what, what's is safe growing? What are the goals over the next couple of years? Any, anything changing besides your office space? <laughs> yeah, um, that, that's kind of the least of it. We have lots of goals. So staff-wise, we're not really looking to materially grow. Um, we, we like being sort of lean. Um, we, we grow when we need to to serve the members. Um, so we, one of the things we're really excited about is our board last year adopted a goal to play a leadership role in diversifying, particularly the real estate development and finance part of our workforce in the affordable housing industry. We've seen great strides in racial and ethnic diversity and, and gender diversity over the last number of years. But when we look particularly in that real estate development and finance part, it's just, we've not made the same advancements. There are still some barriers and challenges. Um, so we're pleased to have board support and are making some some big strides forward. You know, we've started a network for folks that are part of our collaborative working in development and finance who are people of color and are thinking about ways we can collaborate on recruitment and hiring to, to really within our own organizations advance this work, but also think about what is our role in this field? How can we play a leadership role? How can we be working with, with everyone possible to do that? I, you know, I think it's a, a fundamental component of a more equitable approach to the work. So we're working on that, these partnerships with healthcare institutions that recognize housing as a, a sort of fundamental social determinant of health, I think is very exciting and I look forward to seeing those grow. Um, and it, one of the sort of things we've gone deep on recently is digital inclusion, right? Like everything's mm -hmm. online and you and I probably just took our laptops home one day and didn't go back to the office for four months and nothing happened. Yeah. If you don't have high-speed internet at home, that's not how it went down for you and your kids and you and your elderly mom or whoever is having a very different experience with this pandemic. And we've known this is a problem for a while, so, but we've been going a, a lot deeper both in talking in a really concrete way with our members about what are the technical solutions and what are the financial and regulatory barriers and thinking about you know some big, bold policy asks that we felt like weren't ripe before, but definitely are now. So. Yeah, no, it's it's very apparent, like, you know, with COVID, like, it's all of a sudden the, the digital, the digital divide. Is there other? Yeah, I mean, that's something that's being talked about. That's awesome. Is there are there groups out there that are trying to address this besides yourself? Are there like actual like nonprofits that are just digital trying to get things? I don't know, what's the right term? Dig, digitized or, you know, get internet in every every home in, in America? Absolutely. 
Um, there's the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, which is a, a network of folks working on this all over the country, which is a great group. There is a group called Everyone On that has a lot of experience in housing. Um, they partnered with HUD during the, the Obama administration with, with really a particular focus on public housing, so that municipally owned housing. And a lot of what was learned there informs sort of what we're thinking about privately owned housing that may not have that same local scale or, you know, sort of this the same regulatory footprint or control partners and executes a little bit differently. So that's sort of what we've been chewing on is what can we learn from those things and, and how can we partner in these other places and solve the problems that are unique to housing and leverage the power that's unique to housing. We're you know really, really recently um, talking with members who are thinking about, all right, how do I solve not just my building, but the neighborhood? Like what can my building do for the neighborhood if I you know think about signals and the power that I have here? So that's pretty exciting. and. Many, many new partners and friends I think we're going to get to meet in the new year as we explore that. That's awesome. And how many members are in SAFE? Uh, so 13 organizations. Organizations. And how many units do you think you guys cover? 148,000-ish. Uh, we survey as of the end of every year. So it was 147.5 at the end of last year. So I think we'll easily break 150 this year. Wow. That's a lot of, that's a lot of units. It is. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on such a great job you guys are doing. Thank you. It's uh, always more good work to do, right? Uh, yeah, it's awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. Are you ready for the hot seat? Sure. Oh! The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services, which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They've also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR functions. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. We love it. Julio just, we had this stupid little salt, not a stupid little salt. Now we brought in the, our, what's that? It's getting hot in here, song. It's awesome. <laughs> so it just started. <laughs> so these are the five questions I ask all my guests. Question number one, any books you recommend, whether it's about affordable housing, which is what our, you know, our topic here is, but it could be about life. It could be about careers or mindset. Any books that you recommend to people? Yeah. So I mean, I think like every good houser, I recommend folks read Evicted by Matthew Desmond. It, it really is a, a fantastic ethnography. Um, I am forgetting the name of a book I would like to tell you that Anand Giridas, who is a writer for the New York Times, wrote last year. It's winners, actually. Winners take all. Yeah, so I recommend that. It really sort of challenges the notion of sort of doing well by doing good, and I think uh, is, is timely. And, you know, novel-wise, I'll tell you, I finished The Vanishing Half recently, and I thought it was a pretty fantastic book. So if folks are going into the holidays and wanting a book. Um, uh, how about any podcast recommendations? Uh, I'm not sure if you listen to any, but are there any really good ones focused on housing or policy or anything like that that you know of? Uh, I, 
There are a few. Yeah. So Freddie Mac's multifamily group actually produces a podcast that is, uh, you know, it gets really wonky sometimes, but it's really <laughs> helpful and timely. Michael Novogratik, who I actually think you've had on the podcast yeah, recently, is, has yeah. Tax Credit Tuesdays. So if you're super into the low income housing tax credit, Mike is your guy. For I listened to that. And I was like, whoa, like it was yeah. just... It's just him talking about tax credits. I'm like, it's not even, yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty wonky about this stuff. And, That's awesome. uh, yeah, um, Liam Dillon at the LA Times, I think, was doing one, too. I seem to recall listening to a while ago. So if you think about social policy to the uncertain hour in their very first season, uh, thought a lot about welfare reform, which I think is an interesting history lesson for a lot of folks. And it's sort of very relevant to how people living in affordable housing are experiencing reality now. Uh, what do you like to do outside of work? Um, well, so normally I love to travel, but it's been a, <laughs> year. It's been a lot of Virginia this year. A lot of Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for lovers, by the way. Yeah, um, there, yeah. There's all sorts of signs that say love all over Virginia, and I think we have pictures of almost all of them now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, big day hiker, um, and I love to cook. And I'm uh, enthusiastic, but maybe not the greatest baker. I don't know. <laughs> My son's been watching, uh, he's 10. He's been watching the Great British Bake Off. And so he's obsessed with baking. So we do baking every weekend now. That's it's so great. Fun. It's fun. I've never baked in my life. And now I'm learning all these recipes. And I failed miserably at a Swiss Swiss roll last week. So that's, yeah, that's not an easy task. It still tasted good, but it just was didn't, didn't roll. Um, <laughs> What, uh, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Oh my God, so much. Um, <laughs> I know, right? You know, I, I think just a little more confidence, right? I knew I was unique in that I knew what I wanted to do and I think got sidetracked at moments. So I think like staying true to that, that guide star is, is the advice I would give. Um, now this, I am a recruiter. So I imagine some people listening to this are looking for jobs. What do you look for in hiring people? I'm not saying like, gonna hold you to this and you're representing the entire, you know, if someone has this, you're gonna hire them. What kind of general characteristics are you looking for? And maybe some of your, your, uh, your partners there uh, in the affordable housing world look for when they hire people. Um, so I'm big on customer service orientation, even though, you know, we're not selling anything necessarily. I think if that is your orientation, it makes you nice to have around and, and we get a good product for the people that we're serving. Intellectual curiosity here at SAFE, I think of that as very part, you know, sort of core to who we are. And if you have it, this work is more interesting. If you're constantly wanting to understand why and could we do better and how um, the days go by faster, the work is better. So I, I think that's a huge part of it for me. And really mission that goes with that is, is extra helpful. It, it's you know, not everybody has it the day they walk through the door, but it is helpful. The, the why do you want to be here versus somewhere else? Well, Andrea Ponzer, President and CEO of Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future, SAFE. You're an amazing person. I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Thanks so much. Thank you.